Thank you, Aaron. Now, now that you've found Colossians, I invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians. We had a last-minute switch, and Aaron wasn't notified. But that's, isn't it great just to hear God's Word read? Thank you very much. That's just bonus. That's just a gift. So, yeah, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 is kind of where I felt kind of prompted uh, last minute to uh, kind of shift over to. Um, but each of these themes are from the Apostle Paul, uh, speaking about something that's very important to him and something that is very important to us. So just by means of an introduction, I actually have a, a question. It's a, I, I would love for you to answer uh, by a show of hands. Um, who discovered over the past, uh, whatever, 19 months or, or so, who discovered that you are an essential worker? Who's an essential worker? Okay. And according to the HSC website, essential workers are those providing important services within certain prescribed fields that the discharge of those duties can only be provided in person and cannot be delivered remotely. And so uh, I have a, a, a slide of a sticker that maybe you've seen. Um, some people have been, have been graced or given with those little stickers for their car, uh, the healthcare professionals and, and others. And so we've just seen, we've been introduced to a new kind of vocabulary word um, recently, and that's, that is essential. And so I was looking into that word since it was um, like you couldn't get away from that word. It was everywhere, essential this and essential that. Um, so I, I looked it up, and it really has two different, word, two different meanings, uh, and they're connected, obviously. Essential uh, means something that is absolutely necessary, something that you cannot go without. If something's essential, you cannot go without it. It's extremely important. And then kind of in that regard essential worker became a phrase that, again, many of you discovered that you already were, or many of you longed to become, or maybe you're glad that you're not, whatever. So that is one part of what essential means. It means something that's necessary, important, crucial, vital. Essential also means like the fundamental elements or the characteristics of something. Like if you dig deep into something, you'll come to its essence, right? And so I've discovered through dozens, hundreds of these showing up at my house. Does anyone recognize these expensive little bottles? These are called essential oils. There's a certain genre of wife that loves them. <laughs> what it is, is you have something. Oregano, basil, cinnamon, something. And some magician somewhere boils it down and then distills it once again and then distills it once more. And then you have this very valuable little vial of the essence, the truest, smallest, most important part of something boiled down and distilled to its very core, its very essence. So something is essential, that means it's important. And it also means that it's just, at its heart the most important thing about something. Uh, what we're doing for the next couple of weeks here at Calvary Cork is we're talking about a few of the essentials uh, to us 
and to our church family, the things that have been very important to us over the past two years, over the past 16 years, and, Lord willing, into the next decades. These are things that are important and that are always going to be there about what's going on and what our church is all about. And so we're kind of calling this mini-series Calvary Cork Essentials. And do you know what our first essential is? Hint, you've been singing about them this whole morning. Who is our first essential? Jesus, yes, Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah, our personal Lord and Savior, perhaps you've heard of him. So we're going to be speaking this morning about what it means at our very essence is that we are a church that is committed to being Jesus-centered. So hopefully your Bible is found, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, by now. If not, you have one last chance, because I'm going to pray, and then we're going we're to look into it. Lord, we do want to be still and we do want to behold you. Thank you for the rhythm that we found ourselves in of having these special times when we're able to come together and behold you. It's wonderful. And Lord, I just want to say, worthy is the lamb who was slain. We want to honor you. We want to give you praise. You are wonderful. And Lord, seeing as how all that we've heard from, one, um, from Colossians chapter 1, if all that is true, and it is, why would we want to center our lives on anyone else or anyone less? So Jesus, we declare that we, as we aspire to be Jesus-centered. As individuals making up a congregation, we want to live around you and for you. Center our lives on you, Lord Jesus. We pray this in no other name but yours. Amen. Amen. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 written by the same author who wrote Colossians 1. So again, there you go. Um, Corinthians 2. This is the Apostle Paul writing a letter to a church that he started. And then he left. And he is actually responding to some questions or some issues that they raised. And so Paul knows them. Uh, this church kind of started off really strong. You can read Acts chapter 18 to read kind of the backstory of how this church began in this Greek city called Corinth um, under the ministry of the Apostle Paul. He was with them for a year and a half. And we know that this church was well taught by like a team of leaders and a team of Bible teachers. They're kind of mentioned later on in this very book. Uh, we know that they are a spirit-empowered church. Uh, we know that many of them have very dramatic conversion stories as they're rescued from unsavory and sinful backgrounds. And Paul moved to Ephesus, and then he keeps in touch via these correspondings. Um, they wrote him first, evidently. They wrote him a list of problems and questions. They're like, hey, Paul, we miss you. We got some problems. You want to sort us out? And so he addresses the problems that they raise starting in chapter 7 and onwards. He, he answers their questions about marriage and this and that and some other things. But before he even gets to their questions, he says, here's some important things that you need to know. And the very beginning, he talks to them about the importance, the essential fact that Jesus Christ needs to be central in their lives. So he preempts them 
Before they talk about their problems that they know about, he's like, here's a problem you don't even know about. Jesus isn't central anymore. You started strong, but now you're squabbling about this and that and which preacher's personality you prefer or, or all these other things. He's like, listen, Christ is central. That's what we were all about when I was there with you. And so here in this context, he addresses these problems. But before we get there, isn't it interesting? They have problems and they admit it. That's great. Praise the Lord. We want to be like that, right? Here's the bad news. We have problems we don't even know about. <laughs> and here's the thing. And God sometimes lovingly brings people into our lives to highlight that. And so here we're going to talk about this week and the coming weeks, like some things that we think as a church are super important and we hope we're doing well at. Also acknowledging there's probably things we're not good at, but we want to always be improving. And so the Bible is this wonderful glimpse into churches that excel in certain areas and then also God lovingly bringing correction. I think that's true for individuals and for congregations as well. Here is what the Apostle Paul says is the most important thing. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 It'll be on a slide. Maybe it was there the whole time. I don't know. But here's what it says. And I, when I came to you, brothers, I didn't come proclaim. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest on the wisdom of men, but, he says, in the power of God. From there, we see a glimpse into his ministry philosophy, and that, I believe, is imported here at Calvary Cork. Here's the first thought we want to look at. Number one, Jesus will have no rivals in Calvary Cork. Now, see, that's what's important to Paul for this church. He says, listen, when I was here, like, Christ was supreme and unrivaled. You guys got a bunch of problems now. <laughs> and then chapter 2 and 3 gets into that. But Paul, when he invested his life, you know, 18 long months of his life. You guys can picture 18 months, right? You know how long that is. It's forever, isn't it? So Paul invests 18 months of his life into his time in Corinth, into the minds and the hearts of these beloved new Christians in Corinth, and he wants there to be this unrivaled supremacy of Christ in their hearts and in their congregational experience. And it seems like, if we look at these verses, that during the year and a half that he was there, that the Apostle Paul made this conscious and deliberate decision to turn the volume down on his public speaking skills, and maybe even to almost mute his philosophical prowess in order that he can turn the volume up on Jesus and his life-saving, wrath-averting, soul-redeeming sacrifice upon the cross. He says, I want something to be like emblazoned in your memory, and it's not that I'm a clever guy. It's that Christ is mighty to save. So he turns the volume down on certain things and cranks it up on the other. Let's be clear. Paul is a pretty smart guy. This dude could preach the gospel in like three different languages that we know about. Extraordinarily highly educated, mentally sharp, but while he's there in Corinth anyways, he says, I deliberately want Christ to be central in your brains and in your memories of me. 
not how clever I was. He says, I didn't come with like spellbounding tales or a convincing sales pitch. I just want you to know one thing and one thing only. I'm a one-string guitar, Christ and him crucified. So he could have been really impressive, but he chooses to have a single-minded focus upon one thing. So does this literally mean nothing else? So here, I like how the the New Living Translation um, looks at verse 2. He says, I decided that while I was with you, I would forget everything except Jesus Christ, the one who was crucified. Now, this kind of language, uh, it's obviously hyperbolic. You know the phrase? It's kind of like exaggerated to to make a point. It's, It's like a Hebrew way of making a point. Um, it, it, when, when two things are compared or when they're contrasted, oftentimes it's really amplified. Like Jesus did that. Do you remember when Jesus talks about things, about how if you follow me, then you must like hate your family in order to truly be my disciple? Do you think he really means to hate your mom and dad or to hate your siblings? In fact, he's using the, the Hebrew hyperbole of saying, I'm going to be so central so core, so high in your mind that the second place loyalty that we have to our family looks like hatred compared to the love that we have to Jesus. Now again, Jesus loves families, but he says that when it comes to devotion to him, everything else needs to come in a distant second. Now Paul says that he's focusing on the cross so much that his other topics of instruction seem like nothing compared to his obsession or his preoccupation with the cross of Christ, with his crucified and risen Savior. Or put it another way, it's not that he's single-minded, not that he's, sorry, not that he's simple-minded, but that he's single-minded. That would have been so much better if I had said it right. I'm just demonstrating what it looks like to not be good with words, like how the Apostle Paul says that that he was. He's not simple-minded, but he's single-minded. Here's something that I don't think about very much, and maybe it hasn't occurred to you either. But do you know that the Apostle Paul, and even the other, like, writers of Scripture, the Apostles, do you know they probably had personal convictions and even private preferences that they didn't highlight. Like Paul, we know from his later writings, we know that he had opinions about the benefits of singleness. He actually personally says, I think a life of monogamy has all kinds of benefits and I think it's great. However, he says, that's just my personal conviction and I'm gonna make a distinction between this and between the core message. He also, Corinthians says, he has personal devotional convictions about what food he should eat and what food he shouldn't eat. But he wisely makes a distinction between his personal opinions, personal convictions, and the main thing. He says, if if people are going to remember me, I want them to remember me as the guy who wouldn't shut up about Jesus on the cross, and that's the demonstration of God's love, and it's the power of the risen life, not if I'm kosher or not not my views on these other issues. 
So he says, I'm willing to forget about everything else except Jesus Christ, the one who was crucified. He wants there to be this massive gap between his secondary opinions and the public proclamation of the gospel, so much so that the other opinions could be virtually non-existent. I think that's something that's a, a wonderful, essential, here at Calvary Cork. Um, we are a collection of people who have diverse backgrounds and opinions and preferences. I mentioned this a few weeks ago, but we have people from the north side and the south side, <laughs> and far more diverse than that, am I right? And even in our, not just our heritage or where we're from or what kind of accent we have or, or don't have, I don't have an accent, by the way. All of you guys have accents. I'm the only one with no accent in the room. So we have not just historic differences, but even we land on different places when it comes to personal opinions and even private convictions. And we have consistently bound together because we're exalting the most important thing, the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And it's allowed us to weather some very divisive times in such a way, if I could just pause and kind of speak candidly or, or personally, in a way that's like the, the, the jealousy, the envy of a lot of my pastor friends and peers. You know, as we're, we're catching up or, 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 you know, emailing back and forth or, or talking in, in group chats or whatever, it's like, wait, your church hasn't divided over this or that? Like, well, yeah, we're just like really big on like the core gospel and realizing that we have, we have differences in other opinions. Oh, that'd be nice. So people are envious of, of our hard-fought and committed essential unity. There's dozens of things we could divide over, but there's one massive unifying shared love of the glorious truth of Christ that's held us together, and I believe as an essential, is going to continue. Here's what Chuck Smith said. Uh, Chuck Smith is the pastor of the Calvary Chapel network or movement of which we're a, we're a part of. Um, he just says, one of the most important characteristics of Calvary Chapel is the centrality of Jesus Christ in our worship. We don't allow any practices or behavior that would distract people from focusing on him. Uh, I think that's, that's valuable. That's a, a wonderful DNA that we've inherited and that we're going to pass on to our children. And so before we move on to the, the next subsection of this, I also want to say we're Jesus-centered. Like, we're, we're all about Jesus. Uh, he is the hero of every sermon. We are just mad about him. Theologian Fred Sanders um, offers like, some helpful things in regards to thinking about uh, not Jesus at the exclusion of the Father or the Son, but realizing that to think of him, to be a Jesus-centered church, means that we are Trinitarian as well. Uh, he says this, I, If you focus on Jesus properly, you'll find yourself necessarily focusing on the Trinity, as long as you don't focus on Jesus in a father-forgetful nor spirit-ignoring way. We want to be focused on Jesus and honoring to the Father and empowered by the Spirit. And they're not foes. They're actually deeply embedded into one another's lives. It's called the Trinity. We believe it. That's another sermon. So as we look at our kind of main passage again, 
1 Corinthians 2 and uh, those five verses, maybe as you read it, maybe you think, as, as I kind of was, was in the beginning, this has a lot to say about Sunday morning preaching. Uh, this is kind of a, like a preacher's verse, you know? This is about the, the person who gets to come up and teach from the Bible. I think, yeah, I think this does have direct implications on the sermons that are preached. And I'll talk about that for a moment. However, not only. I'm just going to be up here and reading my job description out here for you guys because that's of no interest or benefit to anyone, but I do want to address it. So first we'll address how this impacts the preaching, but then we'll move on how this impacts every other part of our Christian life. So this certainly does impact preaching. Verse 1 talks about proclaiming, and that is, in the New Testament, a definite preaching word. Um, this, this verse, these, this paragraph, has had a very big impact on me as a preacher and as a Bible teacher, and everyone that I've ever trained or mentored into becoming a Bible teacher. I believe that if you are not preaching on the cross of Christ and connecting all aspects of the human experience to the power of the gospel as revealed through the death and resurrection of Jesus, then all it is is a religiously themed pep talk or a fascinating historical glimpse into what people used to believe or some interesting facts about Babylon or whatever. But if it's not connected to the cross of Christ, it's worthless. Last week, I didn't quote Spurgeon. And guys, I'm sorry. <laughs> I've got two this week to even it out, all right? Here's the first. The motto of all true servants of God must be, we preach Christ and him crucified. A sermon without Christ is like a loaf of bread without any flour in it. No Christ in your sermon, so? Then go home and never preach again until you have something worth preaching. And then here's another one. Leave Christ out? Oh, my brethren, better to leave the pulpit altogether. If a man can preach one sermon without mentioning Christ's name in it, it ought to be his last, and it's certainly the last, that any Christian ought to go hear him preach. I like that. And you guys can hold me to that. So part of what it means for us as a church to have as one of our like essentials is that we're a Jesus-centered church. It means that the, the songs that we sing, that the sermons that we hear are going to be explicitly, purposefully, deliberately Christ-oriented and gospel-saturated, Jesus-exalted, exalting proclamations of Christ and him crucified. So that, verse 5, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. That's what we want. That's what we're working towards. And I believe that by God's grace, that's what we've, we've stumbled upon, and we never want to leave. Here's one of the reasons why uh, this is just so precious to us. Uh, this is from uh, Bernard of Clairvaux, not Bernard of Cork, Bernard of Clairvaux, <laughs> who existed in the, he's a, a Christian from the 1100s. And he says this, he says, 
I preached myself, and the scholars came up and praised me. I preached Christ, and the sinners came up and thanked me. And I don't know if you know the difference between, between that. I don't know if you know what it's like to, to come to a service and you're just at the end of yourself and you're just so aware of all the things that are wrong and the Bible is taught and it's accurate. Oh yeah, that seems right. Yeah, that's, that's true. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh wow, that's, that's cool. All right, now back to my misery. Or do you know the experience of, of coming to a service and, and you're at the end of yourself and you hear the good news that Jesus loves you and he died for you and that he's for you even today is a huge distinction. There's a type of oratory that gets noticed and complimented by academics. And then there's the type of gospel proclamation that's like water coming down on a parched desert. It's like a shipment of famine relief arriving to a hungry port. It's more than just accurate but it's the good news of God's grace to needy people. So you've been there too. Yeah, I, I, yeah. So that's the pulpit. Here's everything else. Did you notice in verse, verse 1, and then again I think in verse um, 4, he, yes, there is preaching language, but there also is, he says, when I came to you, or when I was with you. Another translation says, while I was among you, I made sure to preach Christ and, and him crucified and, and nothing else. So again, this, this is a kind of a preaching section, but it spills over into all the time that Paul wasn't preaching. You know, the church is more than a sermon listening society, right? Um, so this value of Jesus-centeredness is essential to him, and it's essential to us. Um, essential means, remember, it means that it's important, and it's foundational, and it's fundamental, and it means that it's present in every aspect of something. So that means that if you were to have a, I don't know, a, a core sample of something. I don't know, there's scientists in the room, you guys can correct me. If you have a core sample of something and you drill into it, you're going to pull something out, you know, and that's the, the essence, that's the core. And you, you can drill somewhere else and hopefully there's that same internal consistency. Calvary Cork, essentially, we're just obsessed with Jesus. And so that means that if you drill into women's ministry, if you drill into men's ministry or teens or children, or prayer, or addiction recovery. You drill into it, and Jesus Christ crucified is going to come out. All of these exist to magnify the cross of Christ in the lives of the young and in the lives of the old, in the men and the women, those that are battling addictions, and those that are battling other issues in their life. The power is in the cross of Jesus, or the power is in the Jesus who came through the cross. So Paul is thinking probably of a whole lot more of like the non-preaching time that he was in Corinth. You know, he, uh, he made sure that both his, verse 4, both his message and his speech weren't based on plausible words of human wisdom. 
think that means both his preaching and his conversations. So I bet Paul probably had to... I bet if you were to look at Paul's tongue, I'll bet it had bite marks on it. (laughs) Because I bet he bit his tongue more than once. If verse 2 is true, and I believe it is, and if he really tried for a year and a half to just keep on message, that probably meant he bit his tongue more often than not. Maybe you can imagine, you know, there in the lobby of Calvary Corinth, you know, and, uh, and he's sipping his berries tea or whatever, and then someone else is like, okay, well, Paul, okay, now that the sermon is over, I would love your candid thoughts on the new emperor. What do you think about him? Like, do you think he's more favorably disposed towards Christians than the last emperor? I bet Paul says, you know what? I know of one that the governments are upon his shoulders. And I know the one that he rules over all, and I want to talk to you about him. Oh, okay, okay. And then maybe, maybe later on, after community group, someone's like, okay, well, now it's just you and me. So, hey, Paul, who do you think is a better preacher? Like, Apollos or Cephas? What, what do you, what, you know, everyone's arguing about this. What's your take? And I'm sure he just deflected once again. Maybe someone says, so... Paul, just between us. So Genesis chapter 1, like, are those like days, days? Or are they epochs? Are they eras? Or Paul? So what do you think about masks? So you guys don't care about any of those other things. (laughs) I think that if we take this as I think that we should, that Paul had this clear focus to say, while I'm here, I'm here to talk and proclaim about one thing. Now, of course, I'm sure he had thoughts on all of those things, and we could, we could find even uh, it references to many of those. But while in Corinth, I like how T.J. Timms puts it. He says he was maniacally focused upon the cross, bringing every conversation back to that core value of, of Jesus Christ and him crucified. So that's the conclusion of our, of our first thing, and, and that was the longest one, just so you know. So we want to be those that, that we can say with all of our hearts that Jesus has no rivals, that, that he's not going to have to share airtime with other more exciting topics, but that we actually really, at the core, at the essence of it, we just really love Jesus because he really loves us. And the way that he showed his love towards us is our final section. We will live close to the cross. You see that in verse 2? I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ, okay, and him crucified. So the focus of Paul's ministry and what is essential here at our church isn't Jesus the teacher, nor is it Jesus the sage, nor Jesus the example, not Jesus the role model, Jesus the crucified Savior. That's central, that's core, that's essential. Now, does he give us wisdom for life? Does he give us an example to follow? Absolutely. However, his purpose, 
His essence, his core, his mission involves the cross. His work on the cross wasn't one of many things that he did in his life, all of which have equal value. Nor was it a sad thing that happened to a good man. No, the cross is central, it's the pinnacle, it's the crux of his coming. And that's why we sing to redeem the whole creation. You did not despise the cross. For even in your suffering, you saw through to the other side, knowing this was for our salvation. And Jesus, for our sake, you died. So there's centrality to it. And so even to this day, there's not a moment, not an eternity past, nor an eternity future, where the cross is irrelevant. Uh, The glimpses that we have into the eternal state, even in Revelation chapter 5, they're singing, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. He is ruling as the slain lamb, still bearing the marks of his crucifixion. It can't be forgotten there, and it shouldn't be forgotten here. We don't go deeper and move beyond the implications of the cross. I totally believe that Christ crucified is where we have access to every single good thing. I guess that's why our church is named Calvary Cork. Calvary Cork Essentials, Calvary Cork. Have you ever thought about it? Did you realize the name of our church is just two different locations? Calvary. It's the hill outside of Jerusalem where Jesus was executed and where redemption was accomplished. Cork. It's the place where we live. It's the place that we love. It's where I sported and played neath every leafy shade on the banks of my own lovely Lee. And it's a place full of people who need the redemption that was accomplished on that other location. The people of Cork need the benefit of Calvary. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. We want to be those that live in the shadow of the cross. Maybe someone's wondering here, like, hang on, what about the resurrection? Isn't this a little bit too kind of Good Friday-ish for us? Aren't we kind of Easter people? Yeah. (laughs) But Paul understands, I think as, as as we should or as we want to, that the resurrected Jesus is the scarred Jesus. The forever reminders of that mighty act of redemption that took place on that hill called Calvary. And the cross of Jesus speaks of the power of God to, to bring life from death and so much more. It speaks about how God feels about justice, about forgiveness, about sin, about compassion, about courage, about hope, about unfathomable grace. And so as we consider Christ crucified, like that means that for those of us that suffer injustice, look, see, like not even God can stand to live in a world without justice. 
So he comes into this world to even receive punishment for our sins at the cross so that he's able to bring justice finally and ultimately upon his return. For all who mourn, the cross speaks to us about how God himself also knows what the sting of death feels like and that you are not alone in your grief and that death does not have the final word. For the ones that are hopeless, take heart because Christ has overcome the world and all of our troubles will one day pass away, swallowed up in the victory of the cross. And see, because of this, because of seeing the value and the power that comes through the cross of Christ, he says, I'm going to forget everything else. I'm going to allow this to be my one string guitar. I'm going to allow this to be the, the party trick that I do all the time. I got one, you know, one thing that I'm good at, and it's proclaiming the cross of Christ. So Paul refuses to adorn the gospel with his own cleverness or his lofty speech or wisdom. In Calvary Cork, whatever success, whatever um, grace that we've received, I believe it comes because of and connected to being people who are equally obsessed with Jesus, not being simple-minded, but singly focused upon Jesus. We want to be a Jesus-centered church. Not that he's present amongst many other things that we're excited about. Not just a Jesus-featuring church, but a Jesus-centered church. And so, as I conclude, Jesus Christ and him crucified is essential to us at Calvary Cork. Always has been, and by God's grace, always will be. In 80 years, when everyone in this room is dead, and this church is continued on by our kids and by our converts, Calvary Cork will always ever be about the crucified and risen Lord. Jesus will be unrivaled, and we will seek to live under the shadow of his cross all of our days. So I'm going to pray, and then Ernie's going to lead us in some, some songs. Lord, we certainly do desire to be a Jesus-centered church. But that can't come from elders' meetings or trustees' declarations or even an, an essential series about it. The way that we're going to be a Jesus-centered church is to be Jesus-centered individuals. So, Lord, I pray that for the women and the men, the, the old and the young that are present, that are listening online or here in the room, we pray that this would not just be a mantra that we sign off on. Oh, yeah, we're Jesus-centered. But that, Lord, our lives would be centered on you, that you would have a sort of gravitational pull that, that pulls other things towards you rather than you being marginalized because of our interest in other fascinating, lesser things. Colossians 1 is true. You are the image of the invisible God. And so may we be satisfied with nothing less or nothing else than you. 
Lord, for the, the ones who might not know you in a personal way, it's good to be part of a Jesus-centered church. It's good to attend. But I pray that those who hear my voice, who don't know the Jesus that we're talking about, would open their hearts to receive him by faith, would renounce the lesser things that they're trusting in, would confess sin and receive forgiveness from you. You, upon Calvary, accomplished good things for people in Cork. And so I pray that that might be received even this morning. So Lord, I thank you that we're not your hype men, we're not advertisers trying to make you sound better than you are. In fact, it's the absolute opposite. Even our best falls short to declare your goodness and your glory. Help us, I pray, as we borrow the lyrics of the songs that we sing to give you the honor to proclaim you as the one that we are centering our lives and our church on. In your name, amen.